Well, good morning. Hope you're doing well today. My name is Andrew Philbeck. I am uh, in charge of home groups here, and I'm excited to get to be here with you today and share this week's message. My dad is off in Israel again, having the trip of a lifetime again. Uh, with a bunch of people from our church. I know they're having a great time. I've been able to get some text messages from him, so uh, we're excited for that. I want to keep them in our prayers as they continue to travel. Uh, even though he is out of the country, we are going to continue our Let's Talk About Jesus series today. We're going to do that by uh, continuing our journey through Matthew chapter 9. You can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 9, verse 9 through 13. If you want, you can just Hold your place there. We'll read our text in a moment. Uh, one of the things that my dad has brought up time and again is that he has sectioned off the book of Matthew to help uh, in this process of our journey through the book. And chapters 8, 9, and 10 are what he has been calling glimpses of greatness. Glimpses of greatness. We're obviously right in the middle of that. And while there are many reasons that we could call these chapters, uh, great chapters, and, and talk about these glimpses of greatness, one of the points that my dad brings up time and again that I want to bring up for you this morning is the idea, the truth that no one lives a great life by accident. No one lives a great life by accident. I really believe that we see this truth come alive in our text this morning. We are going to, in a moment, actually read about Matthew writing about his own Calling, his own conversion, you know, the moment that he began to follow Jesus, when Jesus invited him to participate in his ministry. And I don't know about you, but I love the conversion accounts, these, these stories throughout the New Testament. It reminds me of the fact that, you know, we all have our own stories. I don't know what it was like for you, but growing up in church, I remember being told time and again that I needed to be able to tell my testimony. That's what we always called it. You need to be able to share your testimony, which was basically just them saying, I need to be able to share the story of how I became a follower of Jesus. I think this is a great thing. I honestly believe that everyone here should be able to do that if you're a follower of Jesus, you know, whether you write it down, whether you share it with a family member, a loved one, or just a close friend, you need to be able to tell how you became a follower of Jesus. Now, that being said, as a kid, when I was in youth group and I heard this, I always hated it. I always hated being told that I needed to share my testimony because while I can remember, you know, talking to my parents about sin and talking to them about baptism and understanding my need for a Savior... I also understood that my testimony was pretty boring. There's no other way for me to say it today. It was pretty boring. I grew up in church, big shock there. Because of that, I participated in church. You know, I read my Bible. I had a Christian worldview. I did, you know, quote-unquote, Christian things. And so, and I can't think of any other way to say this to you today, when I became a Christian, when I accepted Jesus as my Savior, when I was baptized... There wasn't really anything in my life that changed. And I hope you understand what I mean when I say that because I, I, I do believe and I understand that everything changed. When I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, yes, everything changed. But at the same time, I just continued to do everything that I had been doing. You know, it wasn't this 
this exciting testimony where now I, I ceased to live life the way that I had lived before and I was on the straight and narrow and everything was, was different and new and exciting, I continued to go to church. I continued to participate in church. I continued to read my Bible and do all of those things. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you have a similar story. I want to encourage you and say, you know, don't feel bad. It took me a little while. Uh, I had to grow up a little bit before I stopped feeling like my testimony was boring. God was just as happy when those of us with boring testimonies accepted Jesus as our Savior as he is when someone, you know, really bad becomes a Christian. Someone with a really exciting testimony, you know, that talks about things that we don't usually talk about in church, unless someone's sharing their testimony, that is. Uh, You know, God's excited when we become Christians, no matter who we are. And Matthew, as we'll see in a moment for his part, he doesn't really give us much of a story at all. He doesn't have a, a Damascus Road experience like Saul does before he becomes the Apostle Paul. He, he recounts Jesus calling him, and he does so quickly, he does so humbly, and then he moves on to the next event that happened. But that being said, even though, and you'll see this when we read our text uh, really quick, There's not much that happens here. I do believe that Matthew demonstrates for us this reality that no one lives a great life by accident in a wonderful way that challenges us in our own lives this morning. So, that being said, let's go ahead and read our text. Would you stand with me this morning for the reading of God's Word? I'm going to read Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. You can follow along. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Thank you. You may be seated. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now, I like to try and do things as simply as possible. So we're just going to break this text up into two parts. Um, we're going to talk about each of them for a little bit. We're going to spend more time on the second part, just a heads up. Uh, but if you're taking notes this morning, I want you to go ahead and write this down next to number one in your handout. Write down the call. The call. That's what we see in verse 9. It's two sentences. That's when Matthew uh, tells us how he started following Jesus. I'm not going to reread it for you since we just looked at it, but it'll be on the screen if you want to check it again. Like I said... This is not an exciting conversion account. You know, Matthew doesn't have that divine light blind him like Saul of Tarsus does. Uh, Jesus doesn't come up to Matthew and claim to know him before they've even met like he does when he calls Nathaniel. John the Baptist doesn't tell him plainly that Jesus is the Lamb of God like he does for Andrew in John chapter 1. No, by all accounts, what we have here is Matthew sitting alone in his booth. We could think of it as Matthew sitting alone in his office. Jesus comes by, says, follow me, and that's what Matthew does. 
And on the one hand, I think we read this and we see some great faith on display. This cut and dry uh, recounting of events. Jesus calls and Matthew follows. I'm sure there are many people all over the world that wish their conversion story, their testimony, you know, their account of how they started following Jesus was just like this. I bet there are many people who wish they could simply say, Jesus invited me and I followed him. That there weren't all these ups and downs and, and hills and valleys and problems along the way. That's what we see when it comes to Matthew, this simple conviction to act. Another aspect of this that I think is worth noting, I really do, is I think we see a little bit of Matthew's humility on display here when he tells us this whole episode. I say that because it is so short, because there are no real details, and because we see Matthew basically try to get himself out of the limelight as fast as possible. He understands that he needs to put something in here about how and when he started following Jesus, but he doesn't want to spend a lot of time on it, and he doesn't really want to give us any details about it. You know, someone would say maybe years down the road, how did you start following Jesus? And Matthew says, well, he just invited me. He doesn't even record his original name. That's the name Levi. We find that out from Luke's accounting of events. Matthew Uh, His name actually means gift of God. Certainly, uh, that was given to him after his conversion as a way to celebrate it. In Luke's account, we also see two words that I want to focus on for a little bit. We we see what Matthew did. He left everything. He left everything. Matthew was a tax collector. And here's the deal. (laughs) Sometimes I think, and I know this is partly because I grew up in the church, but sometimes I think anyone who's ever been, maybe to any kind of church, for any length of time, would know how the Israelites felt about tax collectors. I think it's one of the things that we hear in church and talk about in church time and again. But that being said, on the off chance that this morning there's someone here or someone watching that doesn't know how the Israelites felt about tax collectors, I'll just say this, they hated them. They hated them. That's the simplest, probably the most honest and straightforward way to describe things. Uh, They were traitors because they worked for Rome. They were thieves because they collected above and beyond what was necessary in order to line their own pockets and to gain wealth. Not just a means to live, but wealth. And because of that, they were ostracized by the Israelites, their own community. They were not allowed to testify in Jewish court. They were not allowed to enter the synagogue. And I think that when we really think about this, that Matthew was a tax collector and Matthew left everything, it gives us something worth considering. Because maybe Matthew had to give up the most material wealth out of all the apostles because of his decision to follow Jesus. Now, we know that wealth in and of itself is not evil. We know that money in and of itself is not evil. So maybe you hear that this morning and that doesn't mean a whole lot to you. But you know, I think that with everything we know about money, all the stewardship series that we've been a part of over the years here at Mount Pleasant and probably other churches, I know other churches that I've been involved with, when I think about the stumbling block that it can be and when I think about, you know, verses like Mark 10 verse 25 when it says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It makes me think that this was a big deal. This was something worth us noticing, especially the fact 
that Matthew just leaves it all behind. He had to have been experiencing some some great dissatisfaction in his life. He had to have been dealing with some maybe severe turmoil inside of himself when he saw Jesus that day. We know that Jesus had been doing considerable uh, work and teaching in the region around Matthew. And while we don't know whether or not Matthew was present for any of the teachings or present for any of the miracles, uh, we know that he was most likely, he had to have been most likely aware of Jesus, aware of, you know, who he was, aware of his teaching, aware of his miracles. And so, when Jesus sees him sitting in his booth, sitting in his office, alone that day, he calls out to Matthew. And Matthew, for everything he has going on in his life, understands that the opportunity to follow Jesus is worth the price of leaving his old life and his old livelihood behind. I know that it costs us to follow Jesus. It costs us to follow Christians. But for most people, especially in our society, most people, they don't have to leave their job. They don't have to leave their livelihood behind when they become a Christian. I know that sometimes that happens. I'm not trying to be insensitive to that. But for the most part, I don't think it does. But Matthew gave up everything, left everything. He doesn't ask for time to settle affairs. There's no hesitation. He doesn't say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, but first let me do this like we've read about in other accounts leading up to this one. He leaves knowing that he can never come back. I think that Jesus saw Matthew and he understood right away the need of his heart, the greatest need of his life, which was to follow him. And no matter how wealthy Matthew may or may not have been, no matter how luxurious his life may or may not have been at that time, it was not fulfilling And so Matthew responds. Another thing that I love is I think that Jesus looked at Matthew and he saw great potential. He saw great potential. You know, Jesus looked at this man who everyone else in their society had given up on, who everyone else had turned their backs on, who everyone else said, there's no way this guy is going to be able to or is worthy to do something great for the nation of Israel. There's no way this guy's worthy to do something great for God because of the choices that he has made. But Matthew, or excuse me, Jesus understands that there is great potential in Matthew to do great things. That should challenge all of us this morning to really step back and think about how we view other people, the judgments we make about them, whether or not we think that God would be able to get through to someone like that, or whether or not God would be able to use someone like that. No one is too far gone. No one cannot be used by God. Great leaders see the potential in others. And I would argue that Matthew displays the reality of his true potential uh, right away. This is number two in your handout. You can write this word down if you're taking notes. Write down the confrontation. The confrontation. Now, I do want to reread this part to you this morning before we move on because this is where I believe we get most of the application for our own lives. It says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. 
But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So admittedly, reading between the lines here a little bit, the reason that I say Matthew displayed his potential right away is because as soon as, or really close to, Jesus calling him, what Matthew does is he throws a dinner party so that all of his friends, which means all of the people just like him, because remember, he's ostracized by the community around him. So all of the people just like him also left out, also looked down upon, could meet Jesus. And I realize that I can't stand up here this morning and and say that with 100% accuracy, that I can't speak to his attitude and his motivation with 100% certainty, but it seems to me, given all that we know about Matthew, that he, he did this not as a way to celebrate some great new adventure in his life, that he, he did this not as a way to, to show off a connection that he had with this, this popular prophet, but he did it because if these people were just like him, then he knew they needed Jesus just as much as he did. If his friends were just like him, they needed Jesus just as much as he did. And this is a great act. This is a great thing for him to do, and it does not happen by accident. Matthew understood that to do something great meant to bring people to Jesus, and so that's what he did. And my guess is that he was a smart guy. My guess is that he had already run the numbers, and he understood what following Jesus would cost him. And here's what I mean when I say that. My guess is that he realized that his friends, these tax collectors, these sinners, they probably weren't going to stick close by him as he underwent this spiritual and moral transformation. So in Matthew's case, he maybe had one shot to literally get them in touch with Jesus. And that's what he does. I love that. I love that. And we don't know, we don't know what happened with all of these people at the end of the night, but we know that Matthew did all that he could. I hope that's challenging to you this morning. You know, what do you do to get people in touch with Jesus? Matthew's, you know, I I can only imagine excited, excited about the opportunity to follow Jesus, excited to have his friends there with Jesus and his other disciples sharing a meal together, which was a huge deal in that society. But we know that some people were not excited. We know the Pharisees were furious. I mean, here Jesus is uh, eating with, in their eyes, the worst of the worst. And isn't this the guy that was just lecturing everybody not that long ago about how, how high God's standards of righteousness are and how, how much harder it is to be right with God than, than we ever thought and there's no way that anyone can do it. And yet here he is eating with sinners and tax collectors. If this guy really is righteous, there's no way. There's no way he would ever eat with people like this. You know, this describes the Pharisees perfectly. They're, they're too good to do any good. They're, they're, they're too clean to get their hands dirty. They're too right with God to help those who aren't. Their words to the disciples when, when they say, um, um, I'm in the wrong section. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's not a question. That's an accusation. That's a condemnation. Because to them, there's no acceptable answer Jesus could give for his behavior. 
Now, they're not going to talk to Jesus about that, of course. They're going to talk to his disciples about it and then just talk about Jesus behind his back. Uh, That doesn't really work out, though. Jesus heard what they had to say, and he answers for himself. And I love this. I'm sure you love it as well. I love how concise Jesus' responses. I love how much power is in Jesus' words, this, this brief um, answer to their accusing question that had to be an embarrassing thing for them to sit through or stand through. Because in his answer, he lays out the reality of his ministry and the reality of what they should be doing as well. And the first thing he says is the most obvious. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I feel really, really sick, or when I'm worried there's something really wrong with me, whenever I um, have injured myself in the past in a way that I can't just, you know, take some Tylenol and, and kind of sleep it off, I go see a doctor. I used to go to WebMD, but no matter what I typed in, they always said that I had cancer. Um, I'm sure that's the, it's bad. It, you're dying. You're already dead. You know, that's WebMD for you for some reason. Um, so I don't do that anymore. But imagine, imagine if you went to a doctor and he or she, they gave you an exam and then they kind of sat down and just started to list things off one at a time, okay? You have a 103 degree fever. You have a rash on your back and it's really gross. You have a cut on your foot and it's infected and they just go on and on and on about all the things that are wrong with you. And once they get to the end of the list, instead of prescribing you something, they say, okay, now you need to leave because I don't want to get sick too. And they kick you out of their office. What kind of review are you going to give that doctor when you get home? But I think that's kind of what the Pharisees would do. You know, they knew enough to be dangerous. They knew when people were sinning, and their response was not just to stay as far away from them as possible, but it was to condemn them. And I know, I know that while, you know, we read the Gospels and we don't like the Pharisees, I also know this might sound a little strange when you think about it, because if you're like me, you know, then my whole life I've been told to run from sin, avoid sin, uh, stay away from sin, don't let sin get a foothold in your heart. I, I realize that, and I understand that's true. But what we're talking about here is not battling with temptation in our own lives. We're talking about sitting by and letting people die in their sins. We're talking about refusing to help someone. That's not what a good doctor does. And that's why I love this illustration that Jesus gives, this idea that he is the doctor, he is a physician, he is here to help the sick. The next thing he does is, honestly, I think he kind of tries to embarrass them a little bit. He uses this phrase, go and learn what this means. This might might be a little sarcastic for Jesus. I know that we certainly don't think of him as being a sarcastic person in his ministry, Uh, but I say that because this phrase, go and learn what this means, this was a common way to rebuke someone or call out someone who didn't know something that they should have. And I'm telling you what, if there's anything that the Pharisees prided themselves in, it was knowing things. Jesus is saying, you don't know this, you don't understand this, you've got this wrong. No one likes to be wrong. No one does. I don't care who you are. The Pharisees, they don't like to be wrong. They don't like to be wrong. 
And so we hear Jesus say these words, we read these words, and I think we have to ask ourselves, you know, what exactly does this mean? He says, you know, the, he says to go and learn what it means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I want to talk about this for a moment. And before I, I kind of share any of my own thoughts, I want to read a passage for you that I know you're familiar with, but it's a passage that I, I love and I think it describes this. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now that, that challenges me every time I read it because I... Uh, I struggle with my motivations sometimes. I, I oftentimes know what I should do. And, you know, just to be perfectly frank with you this morning, oftentimes I do what I should do, but I don't always have the right attitude when I do it. I don't always have the right motivation in my heart. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you're challenged by that as well. Another thing this passage does is it describes the Pharisees. They were selfish they were empty, and for all of the things that they did, they had no love, they had no compassion for others. And the scary reality for you and me is that they had no compassion toward sinners, so God had no compassion toward them. And so if you and I have no compassion toward sinners, how much compassion do you think God is going to have toward us? And so I want to ask you a question this morning. Are you a compassionate person? Are you a compassionate person? And I, I want to explain this a little bit because here's the deal. I believe that, you know, it might not always be easy, but maybe it's easier to be compassionate towards someone who is suffering because of the nature of the world we live in. We all know people who have been diagnosed with diseases or have experienced uh, injuries and traumas in their lives, and, and because of that, they're suffering, and we have compassion toward them. Our heart goes out to them. We're moved to act on their behalf, to pray for them, to talk with them, to try to ease their burden any way that we can. I also think that sometimes it's easier to be compassionate toward someone who it comes to us and says, you know what, I accept Jesus as my Savior, and they're heartbroken because of their sin, and they regret their old way of life, and they come to us because they know they need help, and they're reaching out so that they can do the things that God wants them to do, so that they can get a better understanding of, of God's Word and what He wants for them. You know, we, we experience these things in our lives sometimes, and we have compassion for these people. But here's the deal. Neither of those situations describe the setting that Jesus is in when he tells the Pharisees that they need to have compassion. Jesus is standing in the midst of these people. It's not the midst of the, the hurting, the marginalized. These are wealthy people. These are morally bankrupt, bankrupt people. And, and Jesus is eating with him, and he's telling the Pharisees that they need to have compassion on them for no other reason than because they are sinners separated from God. Whether they know that's who they are, where they are, whether they feel bad about the way that they live their life, he says, have compassion on them because they are sinners, because, because God 
made them in His image because I came to die for them. That reason alone should be enough for you to have compassion on them. But the Pharisees, they do what's easier. They condemn them. They ignore them. And I think that this is something we all need to be wary of in our own lives because it is easy to see other people's lives and to see sin in other people's lives and to not feel compassion, but to rather grow callous toward them. Jesus says, have compassion. Jesus says, have mercy. You know, we live, our world, we're able to learn and know so much about other people because of technology and social media, because of the culture that we live in where people feel like they have to share every single thing that they do. We're able to know so much about our friends, our family, friends of family, total strangers. And I think that sometimes we, we learn things about You know, okay, so obviously we learn things about celebrities, but even just regular people, and I think that sometimes we we see these things, and it's easy for us to recognize these lives as sinful lives and to not feel compassion, but to grow bitter, to grow hard-hearted, to look at them and say, why are you being so foolish? And to look down our nose at what they do. Jesus says we need to feel compassion toward them because they're sinners. Because the life they are living is going to lead to eternal separation from God. Finally, Jesus uh, lays out his last point, lays all his cards on the table, really. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And we know the true power in these words comes from the reality that there are no righteous people. There are no righteous people. There is no one righteous, not even one. That's what Paul says in Romans 3, verse 10. But the Pharisees, they consider themselves righteous, and because of that, they condemn themselves. Matthew's friends, on the other hand, you know, they were probably just as good as everyone else at, at justifying the lifestyles that they lived. But if you'll allow me to guess this morning, my guess is they knew they weren't righteous. They knew they weren't right with God. And the passage just kind of ends abruptly here, and I think that, I think that Matthew does that on purpose before he moves on to the next uh, event that takes place in the ministry of Jesus. I think the passage ends really abruptly here because what it ends with is Jesus eating a meal with sinners while the righteous people, the religious leaders, are on the outside looking in. That's a powerful image. That's a powerful statement for us to think about contemplate in our own lives. So before we leave this morning, I want to look back a little bit at the words Jesus says, and I want to challenge each and every one of us here, myself included, uh, with how we can live the life that Jesus wants us to based on the phrases that he uses here at the end of this text. I don't have a place for you to write this down specifically in your handout, but you know, I would encourage you to write it down all the same. It's very simple. The first thing is this. Great Christians help sinners. Great Christians help sinners. We're talking about glimpses of greatness here. Now, that might seem obvious. That might seem strange. I don't know. You know, I never condone sin. I don't want you to ever condone sin. Uh, I don't ever want to enable someone to sin. I don't want you to enable someone to sin. I don't ever want to be, um, you know, caught up in it. 
I don't want to allow myself to be ensnared by it. But here's the deal. I believe in, in the simple truth where Jesus says it is the sick who need a doctor. We can, we can kind of make an umbrella statement about our call to help those who are involved in sin. And I'm not going to stand up here this morning and try to work through the innumerable what-if scenarios that we can all come up with. I think there is just a reality we need to embrace. Now, when we see someone... And when we have the ability to do something, whether that that person is separated from God completely in their sin, or whether this person is a Christian who has has given in to temptation, we need to help them. We need to be willing to help them. Great Christians help sinners. Number two, and Phil can go ahead and come out and get ready to play. Uh, We're about done. Number two, great Christians show compassion. Great Christians show compassion. This This speaks to our attitude, the attitude of our heart. You know, we help sinners, that's our actions. We show compassion, that's our attitude. I don't believe we can have one without the other. You know, time and again, Jesus speaks to the importance of our hearts, and time and again we are shown that works, even good works, when they are are done mindlessly or when they're done in a sort of bitter obedience, they account for nothing in the eyes of God. We need to help those who are in sin, involved in sin, and we need to do so with love and compassion in our hearts. Number three, great Christians recognize their own need. Here's what I mean when I say that. If you don't understand that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, you will never have compassion on other sinners. You won't identify with them, and because of that, you'll never truly try and help them. It's easy to feel compassion towards someone who is dealing with something that we're dealing with. If you have a particular sin that you struggle with, it's easy to feel compassion towards someone else who is struggling in the same way that you're struggling, but it's not always easy to come across someone who's doing something or involved in something that you would never do as if any of us are safe from anything and care about them and relate to them and care for them. This is a call to humbly acknowledge who we are apart from Christ and to always remember that even the best we can do on our own is filthy rags compared to what he has done for us. And I'm not saying this morning that if you just do these three things, you'll be a great Christian, but I do believe these are things that great Christians do. No one lives a great life by accident, and you cannot do these things by accident. Let's pray.